1: Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner We'll discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the
0: law.
2: Greetings, and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law Professor and Trial Attorney Stephen Wagner, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you.
3: Good day to you, Stephen. Well, it's April, and now that March Madness is done, I bet people might guess what our topic's going to be today. Oh, my <laughs>
2: Gosh, what a wet blanket intro. We moved from entertainment and thrilling TV activity to taxes.
3: Taxes. 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 It
2: is is appropriate because it it is the season for sure, Mitch, absolutely.
3: Yes, I know. It's not a popular topic. You've... You've hit the nail right on the head, never a popular topic. I don't know anybody who enjoys paying taxes, but April 15th is a deadline coming up, and I thought we we could have waited till next week and be just the day before the deadline. but I just felt that was just a bit too mean spirited
2: yeah, I think that's true actually that would that would cause fright and angst. We don't want to do that.
3: We definitely don't want to do that, but I did think it would be helpful for us to talk today about some of the repercussions of taxes because it, it, it doesn't get talked about a lot. Uh, you know, we all know it's there. We know, all know we have to file. But it seems to be kind of an invisible system that, that sits behind the, behind the scenes. Nobody likes to brag about their taxes. Uh, we all have our own approaches. But there are some pretty serious laws that come into play if you decide to be a tax scofflaw.
2: Yeah, that's, yeah that's, so what we can talk about the penalties, and I think it probably helps to talk a little bit about the history and this term tax fraud. There's also some other issues that are directly connected to failing to file taxes, and one is uh, offering incomplete or false information. That's another issue that we can talk about because that raises a host of other criminal issues, potentially criminal issues. So there's a lot of different ways we can go on this, including, uh, you know, historically, Mitch, I think it's interesting to note the the many challenges that have been made to, to uh, challenge the appropriateness of even um, imposing taxes upon people, because there is a history of people that challenge taxes. I think of things like conscientious objectors when we uh, think of the topic of the armed forces and and people that protest that. There's been a history of people that have protested
3: taxes also, right, Mitch? Well, you're exactly right. You, know, I'm, I, I, you started exactly where I was going to start. I think we were thinking about the same thing. Most people don't realize that our law school has a Heisler Moot Court each year, which is always based on a constitutional question. But the namesake of that Moot Court was Francis Heisler. and And Francis Heisler was one of the, I was going to say notorious, but that's really not fair. I mean, he was really known for bringing innovative challenges that he argued all the way up to the Supreme Court, and one of them was exactly the one you just mentioned. He argued that it was a violation of their constitutional rights for a conscientious objector to be required to pay federal income tax during the Vietnam War because such a high percentage of the tax revenue was being spent on the Vietnam War, that they said it was the in essence requiring a conscious conscientious objector to directly fund the war, and that violated their constitutional rights.
2: You know, you that, know, that was a fascinating challenge, too, Mitch. If you look back at that, because as you just noted, it wasn't just a blanket objection to imposing taxes. As you just noted, what was woven in there uh, in the argument. Was also the fact that the taxes were being used or the monies were being used to fund something that somebody was conscious or a conscientious objector uh, over. And as you indicated, the
3: Vietnam War. Yeah, I must point out that Francis was not successful in that argument, but it was a fascinating argument and considered one of the more creative approaches as a as part of an anti-war movement back in the 19 early 1970s. Yeah, yeah, they actually been late 1960s. That's true Mitch and I think
2: if you look back historically at challenges to the right to impose taxes many of the arguments have been fashioned in a way so as to focus instead on how the monies are applied or appropriated, you know, taxing and spending clauses and uh, efforts to really challenge the right to impose taxes. And of course we go back to common law and I think we'd go back to uh, England, wouldn't
3: we, if we really wanted to reel back. Well not only to England, but you only it's you you mentioned the word history. I would guess that taxes are as fundamental to our history, to US history as virtually any other item, since as we all learned in our history class in school, the the initial war against England to free America was over the issue of taxation without representation.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's right. So it and the and the original arguments w- were that uh, imposing a tax upon people and uh, blocking their ability to actually be in on the decision as to where revenue should go has historically been one of the great challenges, but at this point we're we're stuck with it, aren't we, Mitch, in a way? I mean, I don't think there's any more vibrant arguments to really challenge the right to impose taxes.
3: I think that's right. Although although you're, you're correct. There are nuances. There's specific taxes. There's issues versus local, versus state, versus federal. We do see those cases still come into the courts, where it's a question of of whether it's been appropriately levied by a certain group, whether it's being appropriately spent based on what the taxes... Were directly raised for, so so we do still see tax cases come into the court, but it's not on the fundamental principle of whether or not taxes can be raised. I, I should also say that it's, it goes, it is no one, no surprise to anyone that the issue of personal taxes and audits has been in the news for the past what half a year, if not a year, because the president of the United States has continued to believe that because he's under a personal audit, as he says, a routine series of personal audits. He was the first president in decades to not release his tax returns and still hasn't. So I expect that the question of taxes is not going to go away until that issue resolves itself.
2: No, I think that's true, Mitch. And you've, you've introduced audits. That's obviously a, a significant part of uh, tax laws and, and when audits are actually ordered upon individuals and businesses, and, and the transparency issue that you raised with regards to the, the president or um, even uh, a candidate uh, and the obligation to reveal taxes uh, is a very interesting issue also.
3: So let me just share a quick story. It's uh, a personal story but goes back about 15 years. Had I actually went through one of those routine tax audits, believe it or not. I was a consultant, and so all of my income was 1099 income. And this goes to the, one of the questions you raised about you know, uh, filing, and we're going to talk about penalties related to filing and wh- when it goes from being just a civil fine to a possible criminal action. But I, I had the situation where I completed a consulting project in December of one year. I was paid in December of that year. I then claimed that income and filed it on that year's taxes, and paid my taxes on it that year. Little did I know that my client uh, presented the 1099, which is, as many people know, if you're not a W-2 employee, you get a 1099 that reports that you've received non-taxed income. Well, they prepared that 1099 in January of the next year, but put it on the next year's date instead yep. of the year when I reported it. So I reported it, paid taxes on it. But what happened was in my next year's taxes, it showed that I didn't report the income for that 1099 income that year. And it triggered an audit, believe it or not, that they, they wanted to know why I hadn't reported it. And so I had to go through it. And I have to tell you, it's a fearful <laughs> process. Even even when I knew that I had actually reported and paid the the money in question, it's pretty frightening to put yourself through the bureaucratic process of even what they call a table audit, which you just go meet with the individual and present your paperwork and then cross your fingers and hope they say, oh, okay, that's fine.
2: <laughs> yeah, so you made it through the first level of scrutiny in your case, right?
3: I did. And it worked out fine. I must say, and I'm jumping a little ahead, but one of the things I learned in that process, and and you'll like this. I know you're going to like this little piece because a prosecutor and a trial attorney deals with witnesses. I was advised correctly that rather than appearing yourself in front of the IRS, it was highly recommended that I hire someone. And you can hire there are specialists who do nothing but this. You could hire a tax attorney. It's a much more expensive way to go. You can also hire a specialist. And what I did is he read the letters from the IRS. He then reviewed all of my documentation. And then he went to the meeting without me. And you want to guess what his advice is, why he should go as my advocate without me to that the actual meeting with the IRS reviewer? It was done to prevent uh, out-of-court statements made by you. I knew I wasn't going to surprise you on that. That's exactly right. He wanted to, if the reviewer asked additional questions that we had not prepared, or answers that we had not prepared, he could honestly say, I, I have no information on that. If that's important, I can get back to you. And it would allow him to come back and we could get the actual data. He didn't want me sitting at the table winging it on answers because I, to to give false statements even in that setting, could create liability. Yeah, that's very
2: sound judgment there. Good tactical plug. And I'm sure, Mitch, you were kicking and screaming and really, really voicing um, your interest in attending that meeting, right? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> not <laughs> <laughs> no but that's good I, I like the way you introduced audits what's interesting about it Mitch is that with audits the onus is placed right upon uh, the taxpayer you know it's an interesting um, automatic burden shifting if you think about it right you get the letter that you're being investigated or, or subject to an audit and then the burden shifts on you to produce
3: documentation That's exactly right, and you're not always sure what they're looking for because they will give you general parameters of please bring records of all your income and expenses for the tax year XYZ, and you have to show up with it. And they may or may not, in a course of conversation with you or your representative, narrow the field of focus, but they're not obligated to do so. So you're right. Not only does the burden shift, it shifts 100%. And you have to just show up ready to field any question. And that's why I actually have subsequently recommended to people who are in a similar situation that it is worth the extra expense in this case to get somebody who's an expert in the process and who can guide you through it and actually serve as your advocate if necessary.
2: Yeah. So in the case of the audit, the the message there is that it does shift the burden on the taxpayer and the other thing is there's a obviously there's an immediacy to it also right Mitch because you have uh, a certain amount of time with which to work and appear
3: when we come back after the break we're going to want to talk somewhat extensively about that issue of deadlines and immediacy because in every single circumstance your failure to respond to a request from the IRS puts you in a worse position and it may put you in a worse position financially with penalties. It could be fines. It could be incarceration.
2: That's great point, Mitch. And, you know, I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about the 1099 example that you also gave, although we're not in the practice of really giving advice, the importance of communication. Uh, is really, really highlighted there with your example. You want to communicate with people that you did work with, whether you're an independent contractor or a non-W-2 employee. Communication is key, and I think uh, you set the table nicely for the penalty topic that we want to get into when we come back because I think that if you polled a, a number of tax attorneys, you would see that above all, communication is key. As a matter of fact, if you look at the IRS website, or any of the websites that they uh, they co-host, they speak about communication as being really critical. So when we come back, let's expand on that topic of communication and then penalties that may be imposed in connection with taxes. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. And our topic today is taxes. And when we return, we're going to talk about potential penalties and rules of engagement. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short
4: break. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information,
3: Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot
5: Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S H E P P A R D M U L L I N.com.
2: Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You're listening to us over Voice America Radio, and today we're talking about taxes. And we started by really talking about uh, some of the uh, history connected with taxes and some of the challenges that have been made historically to the right to impose taxes. And we're going to shift gears now a little bit and talk a little bit about penalties that can be imposed if you do not file taxes, and there's a host of issues we can expand upon under that category, right, Mitch? That's exactly
3: right, Steve. And let, let's just start right up front with you know coming up in the very near future, a little over a week away, is the April 15th deadline. And it's acknowledged that there's all kinds of reasons that could cause you to miss it. Yeah, maybe you're in the hospital, maybe you're uh, on a vacation. Now, there's a lot of reasons that one might justify and say, well, I should be allowed a, an extension. But the IRS doesn't see it that way. That April 15th deadline is out there. They know you know it. You've known it for weeks. You should have not waited to the very last minute. They're just not going to be very sympathetic about you missing the deadline. And there's a penalty, a failure to file penalty, which starts at 5% of what you owe. So that that could be a significant penalty. And if as the longer you wait the higher the penalty goes, it could end up being 25% penalty. So, I mean, can you imagine that, Stephen? You're, you're unhappy about paying taxes to begin with, but just by not filing on time, regardless of whether you've sent the money or not, it, just not filing on time, it could range from a 5 to 25% penalty. So that April 15th deadline is, should be circled on your calendar for a reason. You need to file a piece of paper on that day.
2: Yeah, that's a great point, Mitch. And then those penalties can accrue and they do it and they accrue rapidly. And I think one of the things that we want to highlight, because we did tease it before our first break, is the importance of communication. Um, And I think it's directly connected to inattention. Um, Nobody wants to really rush or hurry to get their taxes done. I mean, I, I shouldn't say nobody. That's not true. There are many people that are very vigilant about it. But there probably is a tendency to kind of let it go to the last minute. And if you look at uh, the importance of communication and, and you even look at the IRS websites, they clearly communicate the importance of communication because there's a lot of lifelines out there that I, I think people should know about. In other words, if you communicate immediately, uh, for instance, an extension, you mentioned that, Mitch, it's pretty
3: easy to get an extension. That's exactly right. You talked about a lifeline. That's that's the that's the given one. It's a one-page form. It's easy to fill out. Uh, you're supposed to put in an estimate of what you think your taxes will be. But there's you miss you avoid, not miss. You avoid the failure to file penalty that I said was from 5 to 25% of your tax bill by filing an extension. There was a time not that many years ago that you had to file for an extension and actually wait get to, to explain your reason, and you had to wait for them to decide whether it was granted or not. And those are kind of nervous times because if they said no, you've already accumulated some, some possible late fees and interest. Now, it's for a, a common filer, it's automatic. You, you file on April 15th for your extension, and you automatically get a six-month extension until October 15th. Boom. File a one-page document, Get the extension to October fifteenth, and that gives you more time to prepare. So, so that's the, the the outstanding message here right now. Even if you sit here a week away and say there's no way I can be ready, there's really no excuse not to be ready to file that one page extension to buy yourself six more months. Uh, so that that's a that's a really key item. What I will alert everyone to is that that doesn't eliminate your obligation to pay. You've got the extension to file. So let's say you owe thousand dollars of taxes. You, on September 15th, you, I'm sorry, on April 15th you file your extension, you get the automatic extension to October 15th, but you don't pay the thousand dollars. What's going on during that period of time is there no, there's no penalty excised on you for the failure to file but you will be paying interest on that $1,000 that's due until you pay it. So the recommendation generally is to file for your extension, pay the estimated amount of taxes. When you actually file your full tax return in October, then you can adjust it. Let's say you only owed $500, you would get the $500 back. If you owe $1,500 instead of the 1000 you sent, you would only be paying interest on the 500 extra, not the thousand you already paid. So there's a real incentive there for you to not only file your extension, but to go ahead and file and pay what you think your estimated taxes are.
2: Good message there. So the the extension is not synonymous with uh, a magic wand that makes the obligation go away. And I'm, I'm sure that many people have treated it that way. And they forget about the fact that interest is accruing. So that's a really good message. You don't want to back burner that issue. You can file an extension, but of course you still need to be vigilant and uh, get
3: on the payment plan. That's exactly right. And and what the IRS says is, is if you've made a good faith estimate of what you owe and you've actually sent them 90% of what you end up showing you need to owe in after your extension in October 15th, There will be no late payment penalty. But if you pay less than 90% and then you file on October 15th, you not only will have to pay the amount due, but you may be having to pay, as I mentioned, the interest or possibly a late payment penalty at that time. So for those who are trying to avoid paying taxes, there's really no benefit to dragging this out. If you want to pay the fewest taxes that the law requires, We'll go back to the original comment, file on time, be in constant communication with the IRS, pay on time, and you will, by that method, pay the lowest amount of legal taxes you're required to pay. Very wholesome message. So, Mitch,
2: in, in line with the penalties, let's, let's talk about a couple of terms because, you know, you had mentioned not filing or a non-filer. Uh, there's also fraud. Tax fraud is a term well, that we've heard. Back at when you just say the word fraud. <laughs> yeah. I know that's a that's an attention getter, isn't it? So we can talk about and I think we should talk about fraud or so-called tax fraud, and then maybe compare that to negligence, which are really different
3: terms. That's exactly right. And and it's a big difference. Uh, that's as I used to for all the years, I, I would say that for many, many years when I was a consultant, I prepared my own taxes. I thought I was smarter than the average bear. I prepared my own taxes and and my theory was that as long as I paid within the gray area that might only be negligence if they disagreed with my calculation, I felt safe. but I never wanted to pass that line in which they might and ent- might interpret, my calculation of my taxes as being tax fraud. Because for that, you can go to jail. I, I could live with maybe a bit of a fine or interest, but going to jail was a whole different whole different matter. That one resonates. It <laughs> got my attention. Uh, so, so Stephen, you know, th- this is going to come right down the path of many things you've talked about before. The very first line of what distinguishes fraud versus negligence is income tax fraud starts with the word intentionally fails to file an income tax return. And you've talked about that in a lot of crimes that the men's ray, the intentionality is what kicks it up to the next level of culpability.
2: Yeah, that's right, Mitch. And and it's, it is a mental state issue when it comes down to differentiating between fraud and negligence. So uh, the fraud versus negligence issue really does turn on the filer's mental state. And if fraud really requires there to be an intent to deceive, um, there's a term called see-enter, and it's it's a term used often in law school to describe uh, almost a readiness to do evil or, or a, a clear commitment to deceive and that's really what fraud-based crimes um, or even civil wrongs is based upon. You've heard and we've talked about misrepresentation as a potential uh, tort claim. Well, that, that crime also requires some sophistication where there's evidence to suggest that the person that made the statement did it with the intent to deceive and that there's evidence to support that. And then if you contrast that with negligence, which is really more akin to there being a mistake uh, that is not the product of a lot of careful plotting uh, and thought. So they're dramatically different and significantly different because of the potential penalties that could be imposed. Obviously, fraud is the more serious uh, offense or bad act.
3: You're exactly correct, and, and, and so that we don't panic people that say, oh my gosh, if I make a mistake, you know, I, I could be guilty of tax fraud. Uh, let me just walk down some of the language of what defines tax fraud versus t- negligence, and I think everyone will see that there's a, there's a clear distinction here. So intentionally fails to file an income tax return, willfully fails to pay taxes due, intentionally fails to report all the income received makes fraudulent or false claims, prepares and files a false return. So you know, every one of those had a very active aspect to the standard. So these weren't mistakes. These were, this would have to be proven up in court, but these were actual, intentional, willful statements and filings that that were determined to be false.
2: And, And those examples, Mitch, I think all highlight what I was calling intent to deceive. You know, I think most of our listeners understand that when you submit documentation to the IRS uh, or to your state agency, uh, you do so under penalty of perjury. You're asked to sign and to attest to the information that you provide.
3: I think some people might be surprised that there, there's the civil, you mentioned civil versus criminal. There, there's the civil side of the IRS. And those are the types of instances that I described with my personal experience with a, what they call a table audit. Uh, they, they, they found a discrepancy and they called me in to, to find out what the, where the discrepancy was and to see the actual records. They have a criminal investigation unit for the IRS as well. And so that they, that then shifts over to fine. They're looking for tax fraud. And the kind of things they're looking for, falsification of documents, concealment of income, uh, someone keeping two sets of financial ledgers, falsifying personal expenses as business expenses, using a false social security number, claiming an exemption for a non-existent dependent, or willfully underreporting income. So so that's kind of the roadmap that you can expect that the criminal investigation unit would follow.
2: Yeah, that's right, Mitch. And then I think in, in the case of the criminal track, what you'd see is, because there really is an election, the, the uh, IRS can proceed under um, more than one theory. There's a, really an election that they can make as to whether they proceed or pursue action civilly or criminally. In a lot of the criminal cases, I think you do see evidence of fraud, and the other thing that I can share is that you also have uh, several victims. So, you know, the issue of who's duped and who the victim is when someone tries to evade taxes or fraudulently submit tax documentation. I think um, we can probably expand upon this maybe uh, after the break, but. There's cases, criminal cases, where there is a victim pool that really, really includes a vast amount of people. In fact, it it could well be employees of a company that might be keeping uh, fraudulent books. So those are the kind of cases that get a lot of attention and and ultimately do get referred out uh, for for criminal actions.
3: And when we come back after the break, Stephen, let's talk about some of the actual uh, penalties, criminal penalties, because although I said that the, the leap from negligence to fraud is a, is a pretty much of a bright line, but the words we use. These are really serious acts. But once you've made that leap, it can get very serious. And we're talking jail time, fines that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you're right. We'll talk a little about it. it. Could be individuals as well as corporations.
2: Yeah, good. So when we come back, we'll continue our discussion about tax laws, and we will focus squarely upon the issue of penalties and what kind of penalties can be imposed for the failure to file taxes, and then pick back up on our discussion about fraud versus negligence. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. We'll be right back after this short break. <laughs>
1: If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit SlowLaw.org for more information. That's SlowLaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the
5: basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org.
3: The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The President and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law.
2: Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our topic today has been taxes, and we've been talking about the history of uh, taxes and uh, challenges to taxes, the right to impose taxes, and that's led into a discussion of potential penalties that can come along with paying taxes. We're coming right up on April 15th, which is the due date to get your taxes filed or to file an extension. and. Mitch, before the break, we were uh, signaling that we wanted to talk about penalties that could be imposed, and I think along with that, we can cite some examples of people that have been uh, caught up uh, with the law uh, in connection with failure to pay taxes or some kind of fraud.
3: We certainly can. The general rule that, uh, here's, here's the general rules of what you could be liable for, for a couple steps. One is you know, found guilty of an attempt to evade or defeat paying taxes. And remember, this is going to happen in a, a court of law. This isn't a bureaucratic process where you get a letter in the mail that says, oh, by the way, we don't like your answers. Uh, you're, here, here, here's your ticket to three years in prison. Uh, there's, a, there's You do have due process. You've got the entire bureaucratic process or administrative process, I guess would be fair to say, where you get to argue with the adjusters and argue and share papers and, have a representative and then if they don't like it, then it escalates and there can be an administrative review within the IRS and if they don't like it, then they take you to court and you can then, then the whole the whole panoply of, of the civil justice system or criminal, depending on what they're, where they're bringing their case uh, comes into play and you will have a lawyer defending you so so what's at risk here? so if you attempt to evade or defeat paying taxes, if you are convicted, You're guilty of a felony, and you're subject to imprisonment for no more than five years, a fine of not more than $250,000 for individuals or $500,000 for corporations or both, and you have to pay the cost of prosecution. So the government sends you a bill for the cost of having to prosecute you, the ultimate indignity of it all.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so... After you've been hammered for all the wrongdoing, there's a restitution component where you have to pay back for all the resources used and spent and devoted to prosecuting.
3: That's exactly, exactly right. So that, so that was the evading taxes. A false or uh, fraud or false statements is a different category. Fairly similar if you're convicted Uh, no more than three years of imprisonment. I say no more than three years, that's a long time, but a fine of also not more than $250,000 for individuals or $500,000 for corporations or both plus, plus the cost of prosecution. So evading paying taxes is a potential jail term. Fraud and false statements are a potential jail term. And then Going right back to where we started this whole conversation, the willful failure to file a return or to supply information or to pay your taxes as required by law, if you're found and convicted found guilty and convicted of that, you're guilty of a misdemeanor, but you still could be imprisoned for up to a year and a fine of up to a hundred thousand dollars. So so these are not insignificant fines and penalties and jail terms.
2: You know, Mitch, it would be uh, interesting to discuss the, the tactics and strategies in terms of when the uh, IRS decides to actually aggressively pursue people. Um, you know, what's the thought process? Because you wonder whether or not some people sort of escape being uh, caught up or being prosecuted criminally but there's some seminal cases out there uh, where there's been some uh, celebrity like figures that have been caught up with
3: uh, penalties right uh, you' you're you're correct and and I would say t- to your point of how do they pick uh, you know, you've been on the prosecution side of making those kind of decisions and it would seem to me and I'd, I'd be interested in your opinion on this it would seem to me that one of the things that's going to play into the decision is the same thing you talked about earlier. If there's been cooperation, if, there's, if there's, it appears that they're attempting to you know, play fair, not evade, not, you know, not do, go to the extra step of, of the fraud, willful hiding, you're going to have a much better chance of negotiating because the, the government in and of itself doesn't want to spend time going to court any more than you do. I mean, don't you think that's a fair statement?
2: It is. It is a fair statement, Mitch, and I think that's true. There is always value in early communication and efforts to settle a matter, which really most often includes admissions of guilt and a willingness to cooperate and provide additional information. So, if there if there is that kind of communication, where the Accused or the wrongdoer, alleged wrongdoer, does reach out and make efforts to communicate. I think it's true in criminal prosecutions also that it could potentially lead or increase the chances of a matter uh, being being uh, settled, so to speak. You know, as opposed to actually going all the way to a criminal trial.
3: So you asked about famous cases. I, I think we we've got to start with Al Capone. He's probably the most famous gangster that was imprisoned. And most people, unless, well, who hasn't seen the movies, but most people don't realize he was imprisoned by the federal government. But not for being a gangster, not for his mafia ties, not for any of those things, not for murder, not for theft, not for gambling, not for illegal whiskey running. They didn't get him on any of those things. They got him on tax fraud and so that's that's how the federal government got Al Capone in prison and they is back in 1931 found him guilty of five counts of income tax evasion and he was sentenced to 11 years in, in prison and fine so there's the, the power as you said the, the power of the IRS is is quite is quite extraordinary in that case
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely. Uh, and, and and I'm sure and there's many others. We've got uh, other celebrities on the list that have been aggressively prosecuted, also. And I'll bet they have similar uh, traits in terms of level of wrongdoing.
3: Well, I'm not uh, sure I'm not to judge on their wrongdoing, but let's talk about a couple that people will clearly remember because they are very recent. Uh, Wesley Snipes, the the actor, in two thousand and eight was convicted of three misdemeanor counts for failing to file tax returns from 1999 to 2001 and uh, the government claimed that he failed to pay 7 million dollars in in taxes he he appealed because again we talked about it. it's a judicial process he lost in the trial court he appealed he lost in the, for the appeal in 2010 and received a 3 year sentence and he actually served time for that misdemeanor account of tax fraud. And and you, or actually fi- failure to file, was Texas, failure to file. And during the break, you had asked, you know, what's the liability of the tax preparer in something like this? And as I remember, part of his defense was that he had a manager and a management company that was supposed to be doing all of that. And he was completely unaware of the fact that they hadn't filed. And we've heard that in virtually every celebrity case where they say, I don't do the small stuff. It, I don't file my taxes. I don't do my books. It's not my fault. Well, here's, here's a case in point. Yes, it is your fault. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think
2: that's an important message because in the case of the celebrities, I think their position is often uh, the argument can be distilled to. I make the money and I defer all the processing to somebody else. Well, you can't just defer it or shift that uh, in a manner that will will result in escaping culpability or potential culpability. So that's a really important message.
3: And people may remember that Martha Stewart, the TV celebrity and home expert, went to prison. She, She went to prison for insider trading in 2004, but in addition... She also was found guilty of failure to pay taxes for the state of New York and was fined $220,000 in back taxes as part of that overall prosecution. So it wasn't just the insider trading piece. It was the failure to pay state taxes that was kind of the enhancement, as you was, as I've heard you call it many times. The enhancement was the failure to pay taxes.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: Uh, Lindsey Vaughn famous famous uh, downhill snow skier uh, had a $1.7 million tax lien uh, filed against her back in 2012. Uh, she, unlike some of these others, she, although she said she wasn't in control of her finances, she didn't uh, file those, she was unaware of it, unlike some of these others, she paid immediately. Upon being notified that that she was uh, delinquent in $1.7 million, that uh, different, complete different outcome. Yes, yeah, she, took, she took immediate action
2: and it probably uh, resulted in, in quite a different outcome.
3: Fines and no jail time. So, yeah. it's, again, it's perfect. Even though we're talking about a lot of money, $1.7 being part of that. Uh, Pete Rose... Pete Rose filed, filed pled guilty back in 1990 to two charges of filing false income tax returns sentenced to five months in prison and fined fifty thousand uh, dollars you know we, we think of him now as being in trouble for allegedly having gambled and thus that's holding him out of the hall of fame but he it wasn't just the gambling question that put him under the Spotlight. It was the fact that, that he was claimed to have filed false tax returns.
2: That's right. Okay. So Mitch, let's let's stop. I, I just made a <laughs> I just made a post-it note that I got to talk to my tax guy. So
3: <laughs> <laughs> let's shift gears. You know, wait, wait. I, can I did one? Well, I have to tell one more because okay. as, as you know, yeah, you know, as as everyone knows, I'm from Texas, and I was in Texas when Willie Nelson was found. To have not paid his taxes to the tune of $16.7 million. And the IRS came in and seized his golf course, which he owned and was using as his home. And so Willie didn't go to go to jail, but he did eventually get it settled out at six million. So again, good news, back to what you talked about. He engaged with the IRS, he negotiated in, in good faith, he got it removed reduced from 16.7 to 6 million and then as many remember he put out an album specifically to raise money to to pay the IRS and he, I believe he called the album something along the line of the uh, IRS tapes <laughs> <laughs> and he's on the road again and he's on the road and still on the road kind of amazingly Yes, that is true. So I had to slip that one in. I couldn't let my Texas boy, Willie Nelson, uh, miss the list.
2: All right. Um, I just wanted to get in. You know, today's the day that uh, there's uh, going to be some traction and decision on uh, Supreme Court nominee um, Gorsuch. So we've got to put that one out there because we'll be picking up that topic and tracking that one.
3: That's exactly right. Next week, we will talk about the Supreme Court, the ninth seat. Uh, Neil Gorshitz's nomination, the path to that nomination, and and let's be ready to talk a little about what we think uh, some of the cases coming up will be affected, how they'll be affected. Uh, but we may reach out. Maybe we'll see Michael Cohen can do a brief guest appearance and give us his opinion, as he does many times, about the makeup of the court and how that might affect the pending cases that are in front of the
2: court. That'll be great. All right. I look forward so to that. Tune
3: in, tune in next week when we talk about the United States Supreme Court. A reminder to everyone that you are listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. You can hear replays of today's show at voiceamerica.com business channel. You can also go to our website, www.wagnerandwinnick.com. Until next week, please remember, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer.
4: I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu.
3: It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to
5: present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepherd Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepherd Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members, Who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words. It is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at ShepardMullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com.